to the talk Warhol Real Love with Blake Gopnik and Monica Maioli. Um, I'm very excited for this talk. Um, a bit of a fangirl for both of these people. Um, I'm gonna get started with telling you just a little bit about our two speakers today. Monica Maioli is a Los Angeles-based artist whose practice examines the relationship between physicality and consciousness through the documentary sexual image, primarily through painting. Her work investigates intimacy and power within the larger context of queer culture and history. Monica received her MFA from UCLA in 1992 and is a professor of art at UC Irvine. She's also the curator at large of Andy Warhol Lifetimes, and we're so happy to have her back here today. Blake Gopnik, art critic, has served as the art and design critic at Newsweek and is chief art critic at the Washington Post and Canada's Globe and Mail. He holds a PhD in art history from Oxford and is a regular contributor to the New York Times. His biography, Andy Warhol, is for sale downstairs at V1 and signed copies will be available after this talk. Monica and Blake will be in conversation for about 45 minutes and then we'll open it up to questions for about 15. Okay, thank you so much, Simone. Um, does this sound right to everybody? Yeah, okay. Um, first of all, I just wanna say what a thrill it is to meet you, Blake. And um, Blake's book, Warhol, was one of the sort of um, important books that I was working with, I know Simone was working with, in pulling together the important information in order to actually work with the material of Warhol's life in relationship to his work, which was the theme of this exhibition specifically. So I was really going to Blake's book as this incredible resource, so this was a great thrill actually to talk to you and meet you, um, so thank you. Well, I just wanna say, um, that it was a thrill to be here for the show. Uh, there's a very special quality to this show. I've saw different versions, if you like, incarnations of the show in London and Toronto. And this one is a completely different vibe because, Monica, you're an artist and it, you can feel it in the show. There's an intimacy. Uh, I think a real attempt to come to grips with who Warhol was and what his art is in a very special way. I feel as though I'm witnessing a relationship in a way between two artists and it really really has an amazing, amazingly emotional quality to it, which, which has me yeah. you know, touched to see the show. Thank so uh, we could just keep like this. We can just keep complimenting each other we, for the next 40 minutes. It makes me we, feel good. <laughs> um, every time we open our mouths or in the same location, we just end up talking and hopefully we're gonna uh, pull this together a little bit more because I feel like we could just go off the rails um, in this uh, down these different rabbit holes um, Part of what was interesting to think about I think in relationship to Warhol um, For me was the idea of being having an intimate relationship with Andy Warhol um, And that's typically how I work with my own work and through my own work and and I'm typically need to kind of internalize a subject. And so I knew that when Nicola invited me to do the show that, um, that I would be doing that with Andy Warhol, and I was very excited by that prospect. 
So when I was thinking about what we would talk about, I was thinking about one of the more interesting things was the idea of Andy Warhol's relationship to intimacy, his relationship to love, actually. I know it's an odd thing to bring up, I guess, because it's not the typical way that one approaches Warhol. It's good, um, not polite either to talk about love. We're all too cynical and ironic yes. to actually talk about love. Right. You know. But I think that's a fundamental aspect to your book and one of the most surprising things I think that people are taking away from this incredible book that you wrote is just all of the factual information because Warhol was such a fabricator you know, of, of his life and his image, essentially, that so much about Warhol really isn't known. And Blake, is this book is so revelatory because of all of the information and the complexity of what we find out about, War, how we essentially understand Warhol more completely and fully. But I would say he's actually a, such a contradictory and paradoxical person, his personality. And so you really do learn a lot about Warhol in just reading the book and his relationship for his with his mother, for instance, I think is not fully really understood. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a nice way to start. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the, the Warhol that in a way, weirdly, we all know, I mean, one of the things in my book, uh, one of the goals of my book was to try to demolish some of the myths. And one of the myths of, is sort of this robotic, distant, remote character who sort of looks at the world with this mechanical eye. And it's just so not who he really was, I think. I think he was a really loving, suffering, I mean, he's a human being like all the rest of us, and he pretended not to be, but I think these pictures of his mother from after she was dead already, she'd been dead for three years already. Really, you really feel complexity of a relationship, I think, in these pictures. I, I, I agree, and I was really interested, I was fundamentally interested in framing really the entire exhibition through his relationship with his mother. And so that's why you begin with, with his mother and, and that relationship and that bond. And also you end with the last thing you actually see really in the show proper, in the exhibition proper, is that beautiful um, factory diary um, film of her that Warhol took really when she's at the very end of her life. Um, and you can see that in the galleries downstairs, which is really quite poignant. But I was interested in that kind of point of view sort of carrying us through the exhibition um, and what it would mean to understand Warhol as a son, understand him, you know, really also as the son of an immigrant and what that meant as well. Because I think um, that's one of the more interesting aspects and maybe something that people don't really understand about Warhol is that he came out of poverty, he came out of, um, uh, a position of really being an outsider, not just because of being queer himself and, and rather sensitive, but also because his mother, in a, in a way, felt very old country, I think. And, I mean, he's not just an immigrant, but he's kind of the wrong kind of immigrant. Like, everyone knows what an Italian is, what a Jew is, what an Irish person is. How many of you know what a Carpathorusin is? He wasn't even, he did everything wrong in his whole life. He wasn't even the right kind of immigrant. And I think that touched him his whole life, and his mother was, she wasn't even the right kind of Carpathorusin. I mean, she was, because she, she pretended to be an old country babushka, but she was actually an incredibly complex, sophisticated, cultural woman. She wouldn't even, she didn't even adopt the right gender roles. I mean, she was doing things back in the old country that only men were supposed to do. She sang in the male choirs in the churches. She helped deck, paint the churches, which was only supposed to be something men did. So she was already a deep eccentric, before Andy was born. 
And I think that she encouraged him to be the person he was, cultured in complex ways. She was brilliant and eccentric, and she gave birth to a brilliant, eccentric son. You know. And also she really um, inspired him, right, when, when he was a boy. Yeah. In terms of his artistic um, proclivities. Yeah, how many immigrant mothers say, now son, you must be an artist when you grow up, right? And that's more or less what she did. She certainly didn't push him away from it at all. I mean, he went to college, first person in his extended family to go to college, and what does he go into? He goes into the art department, right? That isn't obvious. Was it true that his father actually, his father was a coal miner? No, Correct? That no? he lied about that. That's oh, how he said that. He was very, very, maybe, maybe briefly a coal miner. He was someone who, he was part of a team that moved buildings on rollers while the people were in them. So they famously oh, wow. moved a Bell Telephone building with like a thousand workers in it. No. With everyone still working, they moved them on really? rollers across That's the street. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Um, so is the story about the, the so the, this whole, again, we're talking, sorry, we're going to go through. The myth, was this a myth that, that he saved up money for, for Andy's uh, education and to go to art school? Uh, it's not a myth that, it's not a myth the money was there, whether he saved it in order to give it oh, to okay. Andy or was just saving it. And then when he realized he was dying, the story goes that he said, send your brother to college. Because Andy was clearly the smartest of the family, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because we don't think of Andy, and this is something you and I have talked about, as, all, as smart. It's not, the first thing you think of is not Andy were all the intellectual. Right. But he actually was. He actually was incredibly smart, and his family clearly recognized that. He wouldn't have been the one to go to college if that wasn't recognized you know, I'm not saying that he wasn't eccentric, but he was, he was a brain. I just want to point out that I'd never noticed before, this is a textile by Andy Warhol that she's wearing. Oh, he wow. did textile design in the 1950s, and this is an Andy Warhol textile that, he's wearing, that she's wearing. Do you want to talk about this fascinating film that, that Andy Warhol actually created, which was his mother acting as... Oh, she was supposed to be a murderess, isn't that correct? Well, her, she was supposed husband. to, yeah, it was vaguely based on a true gossip story oh, at right. the time. But so the idea is that she's gone through all these husbands, and that man there is Danny Williams, who was Andy Warhol's lover, um, lived with, with Andy. We think of Andy as asexual, but as you and I have discussed, Monica, he wasn't at all asexual. He had live in boyfriends again and again. Um, and it's this utterly weird, eccentric movie where she's totally like ad-libbing and riffing, semi-in character, semi-out of character, sometimes as Andy's mother, sometimes as this fictional character, and you realize she's totally on the ball and going along and making things more complex than they have to be. I mean, her English is terrible, right. but she's still, right. she's doing complicated stuff in this very, very strange movie. And you said that she encouraged him to do this film of her, is that correct? You know, it's hard to know. Okay. I mean, stories, the problem with Andy Warhol is that e almost everything you can assert about him is possibly a myth, so it gets complicated. But she clearly is going on with it, right? She could have said no. There's a team of people, you see the mic come down at a certain point, you know, I mean, she's, she's in it. She's right. not, you know, she knows what's going on, for sure. Um, and it's, I think it shows that it's a, it's a vexed relationship. I mean, if you think that this relationship in the movie is some kind of surrogate for Andy's relationship with her, it's not a straightforward forward mama's boy. There's clearly tension there and competition. I think there's real competition between him and his mom about who actually smarter and who actually is more interesting, you know? 
Um, do you, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious about how, you know, you, there's so much that you talk about in the book in terms of uh, contradictory things. In other words, did Andy actually bring her to New York or what did she show up on his doorstep? He tells it that she sort of showed up on his doorstep and then never left. And, and she basically showed up because he couldn't take care of himself. Um, but, so there's, there's a kind of, but then the way that she tells it what, is that she, was, she actually wanted to leave, but she couldn't leave until he could take care of himself, and he was never okay, basically. She was staying until my Andy was okay, but he was never okay. Yeah. Um, what, was that, what was that relationship about in terms of their living together for his, really, throughout their adult lifetimes as well, their entire lifetimes, basically? It was it was neurotic, is what okay. I'd say. I don't. I mean, I, it's very hard because the stories. There's so many different stories told by different people about, you know, who was the boss in the relationship. And I think we want to talk about power and bossing right. tonight. Right. Uh, you know, it was a it was a really complicated relationship. I mean, was he taking advantage of her when he got her to do all the lettering for his 1950s illustrations, or was she kind of? invading his space by taking over space within his illustrations. His, it's really hard to judge exactly what was going on. There's symbiosis there, a kind of pained symbiosis, I think, uh, between the two of them. Um, you know, but it was, he was living in this horrible little basement hovel with, with rodents uh, when she came. So he did, and apparently like a million filthy shirts, shirts. unwashed right, shirts. Right. Um, his personal hygiene wasn't always the best, is my impression. Deliberately, I think, sometimes. And do you think there's some... We're going to eventually get to his sexuality because I think there's something interesting there as well about one of the interesting things that is that you say in the book is that there was a possibility that her presence somehow... I mean, he was raised as... He was a devout Catholic, as was she. No, he wasn't a devout <laughs> this Catholic. Is, it depends what you mean by devout and depends what you mean by Catholic. He, the he part, the he part I'll go along with. He was this weird thing called a Byzantine Catholic, which shouldn't yeah. be called Byzantine, I mean Catholic at all. It has so little in common with Roman Catholicism, with Irish or Italian Catholicism. It's virtually indistinct. Uh, it's a Greek, no? It's the, 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 um, the rituals are in, in Church Slavonic, which is something else again. And it's the rituals, the liturgies are very close to Russian Orthodox or Greek mm. Orthodox. Right. And the, the belief systems are different, the, the theology is different, so, and they hated, the Irish Catholics and the, and the Byzantine Catholics couldn't stand each other. I mean, the Byzantine Catholics, the priests married and had kids, oh. right? Oh. So you couldn't get more different from Irish and Italian. I mean, you may know something about Italian Catholicism. Yes. Yes. Um, so it was, yeah, no, he was an outsider in every single thing he did. He, he said he crossed himself the wrong way. Right. They celebrated Christmas right. on the wrong day. <laughs> he slept with the wrong gender. I mean, what did Andy do that wasn't wrong, in a sense, you know? Um, but do, do you think there was some relationship between what seemed to be a kind of... Was, he, was there some kind of suppression of, of his sexuality at a certain point? But oh. was that really based on his being gay, when it was illegal to be gay, when it was very dangerous to be gay? When it was a, a young cardinal, man. well, someone help me here, I'm not a very good Catholic, I'm afraid. A cardinal sin, I mean, it was clearly a, a mortal sin to be right. gay. I mean, right. I, I guess one of my, I have, uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways of talking about it as a religion, but you, when people say he was a good Catholic, it was 
it was theologically impossible to be a good Catholic in 1940s, 50s, or 60s and sleep with other men. That was, those are in, incompatibles, right? Right. Was that ever a struggle for him? Or I imagine yeah. constantly okay. a struggle yeah. for him. I mean, worse than a struggle is putting it too lightly. I mean, yeah. here he is constantly putting his mortal soul at risk, right? Right, right. Um, so it wasn't trivial. It wasn't a, the stakes weren't trivial, I think, for him. Think of it, I never thought of that before. I mean, it's one thing to risk your life, as he did every single day that he was a gay man in Pittsburgh, literally risking his life. There was a, a so-called moral squad created in 1949 when Warhol was in college, whose only job was to find homosexuals and beat them up or persecute them. They had no, that was the only morality they patrolled. And in the first week of existence, as I was telling you, they shot two gay men. I mean, it was terrifying. Right. But that was nothing if you think that that was only his mortal body, that every mm -hmm. time he expressed himself as a gay man, he was at risk for his soul as well, his immortal soul. Right. That's, so I guess you, you know. wonder if there's some relationship to what appears to be a kind of a sexuality that is also involved with a kind of voyeurism um, that seems to be expressed in, at various times. Like yeah. some of these drawings... Yeah. Um, that we uh, that he made and that you can see downstairs often have to do with a kind of voyeurism, don't they? I mean, that he was sort of watching or participating uh, voyeuristically in these scenes um, of where men were making love or yeah. that kind of thing. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah, for some sure. of these men are his lovers as well, like Charles. Um, Lies and B. Yes. Yeah, it's it's hard to know if even the identifications are correct on some of these, mm. but. Mm. I'll buy that as Charles. I mean, it's funny, because yeah. as you were speaking just now, Monica, I suddenly realized, well, so much of art is voyeurism, right? right. It's not just that right. Andy was a voyeur, right. that the act of making images of people is a voyeuristic one. The act of observing the world is a voyeuristic one. I mean, you're, God knows, you're the artist, not me. Do you, do you buy that, that yeah. there's something voyeuristic? I buy, I buy that, yeah. I mean, no, I think that making work is sexual, that, that there's, a, there's a kind of sublimation that goes I'm on. Not your work. Not your work. <laughs> oh, no, no sexuality. No, not mine. no, no, no. Monica makes work. I think it would be safe to say that some of your work has been sexual. I think that's safe to say. Almost all of it, yeah. Um, um, uh, yeah. But you know what? This matters to me because these are so tender. I mean, yes. to the extent yes. that Warhol's allowed to be sexual in the pu yeah. public imagination, it's it's creepy sexuality. It's it's mm -hmm. hedonism. It's what's the right word? It's about the physical act, but these are such tender images. You know, there's the image that won over his ardor, uh, his ardor, yeah. his soul when he yeah. saw this. I mean, this this book that came out, Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other mm -hmm. Rooms, comes out when Andy's in his um, junior year in college, um, oh. and it comes out at the same time as the Kinsey report that says that a third really? of all American men are experimenting with having sex with other men. It comes mm -hmm. out at the same time as, um, oh, what's the other great gay novel at that time? I mean, there's all of a sudden, they're gay imagery, and on the back cover, they say, I, you know, the standard thing to say is that this book was as shocking for this image of Truman Capote as it was for the contents. Yeah. But right. it's really hard to find any evidence of that. Like, I dug and dug. I wanted just one person saying, well, this new book by Truman Capote is, has this disgusting back cover, and there's like... If, if it was shocking, it was shocking only orally, because there's almost oh. no written record of it. It's but th wasn't it true that this image kind of launched his fame? That's what they say, yeah. yeah. I mean, the book is weird, because 
so much of gay culture in the 40s is so euphemistic that mm. for us, it's really hard to read it. But at the time, yeah. the slightest hint right. was sure. for, uh, the equivalent of it is something super explicit for us. Right. So, I mean, when you read right. the criticisms of the text of the book, it's all this euphemistic, really nasty kind of talk about it. When you ask, oh, this is homophobic. But even the homophobia is so afraid to utter its name <laughs> that you can't tell. It's really, really weird. You know, and here's true. So I was, yeah, I was sort of, I selected these images yeah. to talk about because I thought they sort, sort of reference in certain ways Warhol's drawings of men from that period. There's a way in which um, I think he was really sort of obsessed with Truman, yeah. uh, which was an unrequited situation. Um, was kind of a stalk. He was kind of stalking Truman actually, and um, yeah. he actually befriended Truman's mother um, yeah. at one point, who was an alcoholic. And he um, would take her to the uh, oh, what's the name of the bar? They used to be all over New York, and the last one just closed. There was these Irish bars where alcohol was so cheap it was almost <laughs> free. So Andy took her to one. Right. Uh, so it begins a kind of interesting relationship of Warhol, I mean, the romantic side of Warhol. I think part of what's interesting to me, really in the galleries downstairs, is we start with this very tender and romantic um, way into Warhol's sexuality and sensibility. And I think that really carries through throughout the galleries, is there's an idealizing factor to Warhol that really, I think, is very generous and very tender, actually. Um, and you can see that throughout all of his work is yeah. this desire to idealize and elevate in many ways. I mean, this movie, Sleep, five and a half hours mm -hmm. of his boyfriend, then boyfriend, John Giorno, sleeping poet, um, is, does seem just like what you do if you were madly in love with someone. You would just watch them sleeping endlessly. It's so loving. It's, in fact, so, in a weird way, so unerotic, or it's erotic, but it's, it's not, weirdly, it's sort of not voyeuristic in a nasty way. It feels really, really loving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, of course, it's a construction because it took a lot of work to film yes. this. He had, to, yes. like, he had a camera that only had three minutes of film, so he had to constantly reload it and rewind the spring on the camera. So it wasn't as easy as it looks. It wasn't just it kind was of It was actually relaxed. really complicated and sounded very torturous in terms of getting it to seem as if it was just this unending um, sort of natural yeah. sort of idea of sleep and what that would be like. So there weren't too many cuts um, in the end. He actually repeated certain sequences. No, no, this is his boyfriend, John Giorno. Warhol's boyfriend in 1963. Yeah, John Jornal. Yeah, sorry. No, no, not at all. You should interrupt. Yeah, if we're not being clear. We don't want to lose you. We, and we know too, 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 too much about Andy Warhol, yeah. so we're likely to get off. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this is such a beautiful little movie of John yeah. Jornal washing the dishes naked um, in John Jornal's place. So that, again, shows you Warhol sleeping mm -hmm. over, right? This isn't, right. And this is so tender. It's just exactly what you imagine a lover, mm. gay or not, you know, mm -hmm. just watching their, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever, doing this quotidian um, thing. And these are all, this was fairly recently discovered. I mean, there's a million feet of Warhol footage, and it's only really very recently mm -hmm. that movies like this have come to light, especially these so-called home movies are really recent. And 63, when you think about what was going on at, in 1963 in terms of gay rights or any kind of understanding of openness around sexuality, yeah. it wasn't, doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, just, it's just barely beginning. There was something I wanted that uh, you reminded me to say. Oh, about sleep. First of all, I recommend watching it. 
right? People often think, oh, Warhol's all about conceits, right? Isn't it silly? He came up with the idea of watching his boyfriend for five and a half hours as though the description is all there is, as though it's a one-liner. But it's actually incredibly beautiful and uh, sensual and visually artistic, aesthetic. That's the word I want, obviously. And that's true of so much of the work in the show. Monica and I were talking about this earlier, that it's actually worth looking at. It's not only worth talking about, which is our specialty, or mine at least, but it's worth looking at and, and just enjoying. And this, I mean, I really recommend, I've watched it, I think, three times through. I don't know that anyone else needs to do that. But um, it's worth in spending. In one sitting? You sit there? No, no, no. No. Three okay. sittings. Three sittings. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, no, that would be torture. sheer torture yeah. instead of just some torture. Right, right. Um, but I really recommend 10 minutes, 15 mm -hmm. minutes, 20 minutes, yeah. coming back to it and seeing how it changes. Right. It's, 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 right. You know, it's worth doing that with a painting, and it's certainly worth doing it with, with every single work, almost. Maybe mm -hmm. not the vacuum cleaner piece, which is my favorite piece. Keep your eyes when you go downstairs look for the vacuum cleaner. That piece is my favorite, and I won't say anything more about it. Should we talk about Warhol's relationships with other men like yeah. Jed Johnson? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the, the most surprising things about Warhol is that he had these long-term, uh, very tender relationships with men live-in relationships, and Jed was one of those men. 12 years. 12 years. For this a was the longest. man in the 70s, yeah. no one yeah. had relationships. And they like really that. made a home together. Yeah. And, uh, two homes. Two, two homes, homes together. together, yeah. Um, as you can see, there's, uh, there was a great age difference in, in their relationship, and uh, Jed, um, Jed actually was an incredible designer in the end, uh, an interior designer, and part of that in a sense, education, self-education happened because Warhol was such an amazing collector of antiques, and uh, and he was also a hoarder, and Jed ended up um, sort of culling the interiors of, of Warhol's home uh, homes and, and the homes that they shared together. But also, Jed was somebody who took care of Andy and his mother. Um, Andy Warhol had been shot when after they had met. He was shot by Valerie Salonis, and Jed happened to be there and actually moved into uh, the home with, um, with Warhol's mother and took care of, in a sense, both of them. He was actually quite a domestic person, it sounded like, and kind of an old-fashioned person in many ways. And he sounds like he, in a certain way, domesticated Warhol for a great many years. Could, couldn't you almost say that Jed, more than Andy's mother, I, mean, I was going to say Jed sort of took the place of Andy's mother, but yes. Andy's mother wasn't domestic in the way Jed was. You know, yeah. she was a wild woman, and Jed yeah. was genuinely a homebody in a way. Um, yeah, you know, really made a home for Andy, uh, and the, yeah. and eventually left Andy because Andy got involved with the Studio Fifty Four crowd, and you know the kind of wacky '80s gay crowd, and and Jed was just sort of disgusted at this kind of really superficial behavior. There's the dog. Archie, right, right. Amos and Archie were his two dogs. Right. Uh, we just noticed today that one of Warhol's first college paintings, which we don't have a picture of, is actually of two dachshunds facing each other. Uh, it's almost abstract. You think this is an abstract painting, and then you realize it's two dachshunds, and he gets them in, in 72. It's kind of amazing. And Jed was a troubled person. He yes. tried to commit suicide several times. Uh, it was really complicated. They were two really complicated people. 
living together in that house. Uh, it wasn't easy, I don't think. Can I ask you, why was Jed so complicated? Do you know? Why was that? Why is any? I mean, <laughs> we're all complicated. Every no, one of us. I know, us, but whenever but I whenever I say things like that, you say that. But I some people well, are more complicated it, than others. I say it partly on purpose because there's this notion that Andy's a freak, and he is a freak. I'll give you, he's a freak, but we're all kind of freaks. He's just more of a freak, right. even than the rest of us. But he's not mm -hmm. a, on, from a different planet. No. Right. He's he's he's. Uh, you know, I'm trying to remember the the I. There are many bits in my book that I don't remember as well as I should anymore. He did come from a fairly conservative background, so being gay from a conservative background mm -hmm. can't have been easy. Um, a twin, right? You know, um, and yeah, I think even as late as 1970, being gay wasn't easy. I'm trying no, to no, it, still it wasn't isn't. easy it's, at all. It still actually. isn't, you know, no. for a young person coming out. Right. Um, and Andy wasn't an easy person to live with. Right, By there's all the means. complexity that you bring to light in your book, and it sounds almost like there was a sort of mutual uh, uh, torturing going on at a certain point in their relationship. But it was 12 years. I mean, that's a long, it's a long time. time. It's a, yeah. It was a and serious it, relationship. And in many ways, well, in certain ways, Warhol seemed to really want, as you, as you say in the book, just really wanted to settle down or wanted a certain kind of companionship. And Love. he really liked, yeah. I mean, if, right. you know, how many people in this room have ever thought, oh, Warhol, the great romantic? It isn't mm -hmm. obvious, but it's there in some of the work. I wonder what we have where we could show that. Um, I think this is actually kind of romantic. Well, I mean, his portraits of his lovers are actually yeah, quite romantic. Well, sure, completely. But yeah. I think even the Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah. You know, I think right. the famous... Right. I, can I say right. the, the Campbell soups are romantic? Can I go that far? Maybe not. Maybe well, they're not. elevating. Um, yeah. They're elevating. They are, yeah. actually. Yeah. They are kind of romantic in that yeah. almost the 19th century sense. Yeah. You know, the mm -hmm. capital R sense of romantic. But Marilyn is clearly a romantic image. And Jackie. Jackie, Jackie yeah. destroyed right. by the murder of her husband. I mean, that's right. a really... And Elvis as well. Emotional. Right. And Elvis, yeah. you know, becoming a B-movie star when he'd been the greatest musician America had ever known. I mean, there's a, there's a pathos to romance, and that's mm -hmm. definitely there in almost everything. Mm -hmm. Right, this did. tragedy that's underlying yeah. everything. Yeah. I think another interesting thing that you bring to light in your book is the idea that Warhol was actually a depressive. That's, a, that's an interesting undertow that comes through and informs one. It's not something you mention very often, but you mention it periodically, that there's a kind of uh, underlying sadness there that was something that people that were very close to him understood. He didn't always, he wasn't always forthcoming about that, but that was an, a quality that he had. And I wonder about that. The opposite, the opposite of depression is idealizing or idealization in many ways, is, is r romanticizing, you know, is a way to, in a sense, it, you get the sense that he needed always this escape and that the men in his life, and especially with John Gould, if we could go to John Gould, an interesting relationship is his relationship with John Gould, which is his last, I guess, the last love of his life. And yeah. um, a man who was in the closet, so deeply yeah. in the closet, though clearly yeah. absolutely gay, but yeah. abs was just terrified of being found out. Mm. Lived with Andy for a while. Was mm -hmm. in was in Aspen. Four, in fact. Was it four or five years or so? No, they weren't. They, they were together for that long, I but see. only living together for much less than that. Right. Uh, just but they had a home life in a certain way or something. There was yeah. some kind of domestic situation going on. But it it seemed like 
well, again, he's a much younger man. Um, and when you look at this, these endless rolls of film of, of John, you get the sense that there's this way that through photographing him, there was an intimacy with him that he was, there was a kind of way of expressing his love or desire for John that seemed like it was, again, sublimated through the act of taking pictures. Like with sleep, I mean, it's the with same sleep. sense right. of adoring right. gaze. Right. The pearls, I've, I didn't realize yes. this until That's just now. That's why I chose that photograph. Those pearls were gift, and pearls yeah. were very expensive. Yeah. And these are really good pearls, and they were a gift from Andy. But John would only wear them on the beach when he was safe with other gay men, you know. Right, but isn't uh, it interesting that John wore them at yeah. the beach? at like all, that he was willing Right, and I love that image because it's so much about gender here yeah. with Keith Haring sort yeah. of flexing his muscles. 90-pound weakling. And then John yeah. wearing the pearls and this yeah. kind of beautiful freedom that they were both expressing there. And look at the makeup Warhol puts yeah. on John. John wasn't, I'm, never wore makeup, I'm sure, but he gives him these sexy lips and the eye makeup in this image. And even the gesture of his hand yeah. on his chin. Yeah. I mean, there's such a way in which he's presenting him as a, as a gay man in yeah. many ways. That's a really, he's outing him in a way. Yeah in that image. Right. Um, the, one of the most touching things, most interesting things that happened when I was writing my book is mm. I, you know, I called up a file of, of uh, documents about their relationship and they're mm. all of these piles and piles of Valentines mm. that they send back and forth mm. and from in both directions, Andy yeah. to, to John and John to Andy. Mm. And they're like any like high school sweethearts. These are the most loving, you know, there's no distance there. There's nothing ironic. They are just old-fashioned, loving Valentines, and it's kind of heartbreaking yeah. to, to see them, you know. It's especially, I kind of wanted to mention, there's such an interesting relationship of John Gould because he eventually died of AIDS and denied that he was dying of AIDS. Um, but that relationship that Warhol had to AIDS, and in particular, of course, I kind of wanted to talk about that as well, because he's often criticized because he didn't, um, he didn't address AIDS. He um, did a little bit openly. more than people realize. I mean, he was on committees to raise money oh, for really? AIDS patients. Oh, yeah, he was, he donated work. He was, mm. he was the honorary chair of a major AIDS, early oh, AIDS charity. Oh, no one knows, you know, no. no one realizes that. Was he doing that more incognito, or was it? Or can you be Andy Warhol and do anything incognito? Well, he gave a lot of money anonymously, yeah. so he yeah. was willing oh. to do that. But in this case, they wanted his name as a figurehead for this particular AIDS charity. It was an mm -hmm. LA-based one. I can't remember the name of it now. Interesting. But one of the major early AIDS fundraisers. Oh, that's great. Um, but he was terrified of AIDS, as yeah. everyone was. I mean, sure. the problem with Warhol is because the spotlight is so heavily on him, it always seems as mm -hmm. though it's something peculiar to Andy. Like if Andy's afraid of AIDS, then it's like something strange about Andy or everything he does, or if Andy is uh, you know, afraid of being outed in the 50s, then it's about Andy. But really a lot of the things he expressed were what everyone at the time was expressing. It's just that the spotlight's on him, so we see it as particular to him. But the terror of AIDS, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the yeah. terror of AIDS right. where people were paranoid. I mean, just insane, like, well, yeah, like COVID sure. two years ago, Right. you know? Um, people were really irrationally paranoid, and Andy yeah. was too, but people focus on those moments in the diaries where he's showing paranoia about it, but everyone was. Absolutely. You know, no, absolutely. And then also, you know, what was so interesting about Warhol is that he really was anorexic at, at the end of his life. Um, his body dysphoria was pretty intense by the time he died, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, was, it's uh, weird because though he's got body dysphoria, mm, he's willing to display yeah. himself. 
right, with these really horrendous yeah. scars. I mean, just terrifying. This is just after the second operation, so the stitches are absolutely fresh. In fact, you could see that one of them, like there's still a bandage on this set of stitches, right? Because he was so messed up from the first, well, from the shooting and the first surgery, which they did like, you know, without even anesthesia because he was already unconscious and they just ripped into him. Do you, uh, do you think he always had body dysphoria or do you think it happened more towards the end of his life when he was really starving himself? Well, he didn't sort of have a choice but to starve himself because his insides mm. were so messed up. I mean, you know, he had this gallbladder that was hideously infected, right. but he, he does get cadaverous. Like, look, he looks relatively normal here, but yeah, there's a moment where he just gets cadaverous. And I've never completely understood what happens to make him so cadaverous. Um, but it seemed like he was really like, he was at, what, 114 pounds or something? He was 5'9"? Well, it's partly because he had this ridiculous notion that to model he had to be yes. skinny beyond belief. Right. But that may also have been an excuse for anorexia. You know, anorexia, yeah. I mean, I don't think he had clinical anorexia. I don't think he had been diagnosable with anorexia. But, mm. but it also, was, eating was painful for him. No. Well, I, I talked to his doctor. And she said, yeah, eating was not easy for him. Like, digestion was really hard. I mean, he was ripped to shreds by this bullet. It was only one bullet. But it was, if you ever want to really hurt someone, shoot them, like, sideways, not from the front, because you can hit a whole bunch of organs with one bullet. And that's what happened. She came up, and she shot him kind of high up under the shoulder sideways. And the bullet just crossed twice through his diaphragm, destroyed his spleen. I mean, it was... And then to find out why he was bleeding, they just sort of cut into him all over the place. It's the first pages of my book. If you've got a weak stomach, don't start at the beginning of my book. Go one chapter in. It's yeah, it's hard to read. Yeah, really hard. Um, I, I chose these because I was so interested in the way Warhol is presenting his body here. Um, you know, there's a way that he he was such an interesting character because it seemed that he was so cloaked and he was. Um, so intentionally opaque, and yet he presented himself in this way where he's so he's making himself so vulnerable, so exposed here. And I've just always found these absolutely yeah. gripping and riveting and fascinating that he presented himself. Can we go back one? Because I just noticed something: the kind of bolero jacket, right? Effect mm. of this—the way he's got this pulled yeah. up—is so right. so feminizing. You know? Well, also the gesture, so frankly, so Christ-like. Well, he it? knew that's that's Warhol doing something. I guarantee you, that's right. Warhol knew perfectly well what no, he was doing. Sure. You know? I'm not saying you didn't think that, but it's just like it shows you how everything is is planned with Warhol. You know. Right. I always thought this was something that Warhol did, but you were saying that uh, Avedon actually said that he pushed Warhol to pose this way. Yeah, it's really hard. I, I'd love to write more detail about. <laughs> who was the boss, because they were both control freaks. War, uh, Avedon, evidently the worst in the world, and Warhol the, you know, took passive aggression to a level that has never been seen before in life, you know, and won. The aggression, his passivity won like a good aggression does, you know. Well, I, just, I mentioned to you um, when we were talking privately that I was interested in Warhol's relationship uh, in terms of power and, and love, and I thought that that was something to to maybe explore, um, because I think of him as wanting so much to kind of control, right? That's a part of, well, that's a part of every aspect in so many ways, right, of, of the screen tests in many ways. It feels like it's about, in a, in a way, controlling and capturing these individuals um, 
um, you know, the way he would sort of essentially set up a condition and then leave them to confront the gaze, really, of the camera and yeah, themselves. These, so for what happens is he had a camera that could take a three-minute reel of film. So he puts the reel in and shoots for three minutes, and that doesn't sound like very long. And he would basically say, please don't do anything, just look into the camera. But some people goofed around. There wasn't a strict rule. Right. I've done one, and three minutes is forever. It right. takes so... Just staring into the camera for three minutes, is it really feels like forever. And some of them, you know, you can see they're actually crying because it's yeah. so hard. They're trying not to blink. Sometimes Warhol told them not to blink. I think these are some of the greatest portraits ever made by anyone. I mean, they're absolutely up there with Rembrandt. Um, and I really mm. recommend... There's a beautiful wall full of them downstairs. It's easy to walk by and sort of say, look at those people. It's really worth staying from mm -hmm. beginning to end of these, of one and then of another and of another. They're, they're magical. I mean, Lou yeah. Reed is yeah. completely magical in them. Um, and each person seems very different. Yes. But what do you think about his relationship of, of uh, control and relationship to love or to intimacy? Well, like so much in Warhol, it's on the knife's edge between taking control and ceding control. I mean, is it is he in control when he sets up the camera, or is in fact the opposite? He walks away, and in theory, the subject is control of them, in complete control of themselves. But when you put someone in that situation, weirdly, they don't feel like they've got control, even though they can do whatever they want. There's something weird about it. So he's always there's this weird power dynamic between him and his mother. You know, is is. Um, Jed Johnson in control because he's so beautiful and Warhol know, is right. worshipping him or is right. Warhol in control? I mean, frankly, right. today, that relationship, the age difference alone is problematic. I mean, he's a very young man. He's not under 18, but he's a very young man mm -hmm. um, with a much older, much more experienced, wealthy, And very powerful, powerful man, yeah. Yeah. Right, and Jed was essentially working for Andy. And then also... And Warhol put him in a position of having of directing Bad, which was, I guess, the end of their relationship in many ways. Terrible but, movie. But Jed was not really... He wasn't skilled enough to, to do something like that. Although it was completely Jed who wanted to do it. It wasn't that... Um, uh -huh. you know, it wasn't that Warhol pushed him in any way, I don't think. it was. And Warhol, that's one of the things that's special about Warhol. He did keep, give people enough rope mm -hmm. to hang themselves, <laughs> which is right. cruel but also right. kind. I mean, he did... Let people do things that no other boss would have let them do. You know, right, he right. told Vincent Fremont, "We're going to have a video department in at interview, and you're in charge of it." And when he did a lousy job, we're all said, "Sorry, this isn't good enough. We can't mm. go with this." Mm. You know, he really was a really good boss and mentor. He let people do good work a lot of the time. Do you think of Warhol as amoral? Or do you think morality was a part of his internal landscape at all? <laughs> this is funny that we go to these Yeah, images. I didn't mean to go here, but... Um, uh, I wouldn't have picked this. Well, no, I mean, this, ra this actually raises the issue, because we imagine that sexuality always has a moral component to it, and it's not clear the extent to which it does. I don't... There is an easy version of Warhol is immoral and a creep. No, no, it's interesting to put, leave it here. Interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have chosen way this to, put to it. talk, but yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, there's an easy version of Warhol the creep, put it that way. There are mm -hmm. various people who are in his circle who've, who said he was a user, a creep, a monster. Right. They have a reason for saying that that isn't straightforward, shall we say. 
that, you know, there's a lot of resentments there. He's super powerful. They all thought they were geniuses, and he's kind of making fun of them a lot of the time. There are, I'm more interested in maybe larger number of people who say he was a sweet, generous, you right. know, couldn't have been better to them, was all about empowering people. Yeah, yeah. Both things, there are witnesses on both sides of the equation, but I'm, there are more reasons to be suspicious of the ones saying he was a creep uh, because he didn't let them get away with things they wanted to get away with and they were troubled people anyways. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean the famous case is Edie Sedgwick. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Was he a creep for, for what? Letting her be Edie Sedgwick, basically. Mm -hmm. She was dysfunctional beyond belief. She was someone who really was on the edge of collapse at all times and then, of course, did collapse completely. Right. A, there was nothing anyone in the world could do. She was so damaged by the time she arrived on his scene. Her, his, her family had destroyed her. Mm. You know, I mean, it was a nightmare. And they were never as close, I think, as people think. She was someone who arrived at the factory. She was another person there. The press pretended they were close, partly to avoid, to, as a beard for Warhol, so they didn't right. have to admit that he was gay. So mm -hmm. it's very convenient to be able to say Warhol and his girlfriend, Edie Sedgwick, right? But, um, uh, well, we don't dwell on Edie Sedgwick, but I think it was not straightforward at all that he could have helped her, that he should have helped her. But wasn't he also kind of um, enchanted by her or with her? Everyone, you watch a video with her, a movie of her, she's charismatic yeah. beyond belief. She's gorgeous. She's completely right. photogenic. I mean, yeah. you know... They're I'm, kind of male-female, kind of twinned in a way. Except, no? Yes, except they do that deliberately. It's clear right, she bleaches his yeah. hair. He right. starts dressing like her. Right. I mean, and right. this is a conceit, clearly. They both know they're doing it. It's right. not accidental. Mm. But Warhol's not charismatic. He's amazing and fascinating. Mm. But he doesn't have the screen charisma that she does, where you just watch her, and she's, you can't take your eyes away from her. You know. I, I think one of the, one of the more interesting things in your book too is that you talk about this idea of Warhol as is actually quite charismatic or quite magnetic. Magnetic is a good word. Were really almost um, I don't know if it was trance around him, but that people described feeling that they were in a trance around him. Is yeah. That I think that's accurate. Uh, well, I mean, it's weird because once, this, once he gets famous, once the factory mm. gets established, it has a magnetic pull of its own, right. which in a way is way beyond Warhol. I mean, a lot of the so-called factory superstars, like Ondine, arrived there because of his helper, Billy Name. Mm -hmm. They were part of this circle, the mole men of, of uh, amphetamine addicts right. that were mostly there in the middle of the night when Warhol wasn't there. So there was a mm. factory scene that didn't mm. have that much to do with Warhol. Uh, none of them were in this scene, but you get a feel for it in a weird yeah. way. Um, so there was a whole factory world that Warhol was sort of outside of, I think, and he filmed yeah, it. Right. But people imagined he was part of it too. He used he used amphetamines, but in a much more practical way to just have more hours to make art. Right. <laughs> Sometimes right. I wish I was. We all were still speed addicts. I'd get more written, you know. But it was totally normal. Everyone in America was taking speed at that time. I mean, the, the, the number of pills, I can't remember what the number is. The number of prescriptions is insane. It was totally legal. Right. Kids, everyone in college, I guess that's still probably the case, was on it. Um, yeah, there you go. Someone seems to know something about this. <laughs> Double dot dexedrine. Um, um. 
look at those eyes, you know. Um. I guess also when I talk about uh, Warhol as, as whether or not he was moral, sometimes I think his work um, has within it a kind of moral question. Um, the electric chairs, death and disaster we were I think they're about. deeply moral, they're political. And the yeah. political is moral. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a tendency, a weird tendency to not see these as emotional and not right. see them as political. I mean, these are white cops sicking dogs on black marchers. How is that not political? Right. You know? Right. right. And it was, it was unreadable as apolitical at the time. Mm -hmm. There was no way right. to present this image right. and not be, not be on the left. Yeah. Right. You know, these were images right. that the left owned. Right. You know? Um, and, and what about the blank canvas well, in relationship to these images? You know, he's a super, super sophisticated connoisseur of art history, mm -hmm. which is something else people don't realize. And the monochrome was the marker of avant-gardism, right? I discovered one of the most exciting discoveries, it's either discovery or an invention of mine, is that there's a close relationship between him and the French artist Yves Klein. Mm -hmm. Who's the you know right. makes these amazing blue right. monochromes canvases that right. are just blue, um, so that represents, in a way, it's a synecdoche, I think, a, for mm -hmm. the entire avant-garde, mm -hmm. right? You put a blank canvas, a monochrome, and you're saying, I am part of the avant-garde tradition, even as he's kind of making fun of it. I mean, he liked to say, well, here's a classic Warholism. He said, oh, I just put the blank canvas because then I can sell it for more. It was, because there'd be two images, it was exactly the opposite. opposite yeah. No collector in 1964 wanted a blank canvas. And actually, right? diptychs are really hard to sell, I was told by a dealer. <laughs> by a dealer, yeah. Make them horizontal, yeah. verticals are hard to sell, right? right. Um, uh, oh, I wanted to show... Oh, this um, is amazing. This beautiful image of um, Evelyn McHale, um, who was, this was the source image for this... Uh, suicide fallen body, which is a very actually quite famous um, image that was printed in Life in 1947, the year about a week after her her suicide. Amazingly, um, they could print this. I know. I don't think it any really magazine would amazing. do that now. It is amazing. It's just you know she's just jumped from the Empire State yeah. Building and somehow she lands. She's wearing white gloves and she's it's clutching. Right. Is it pearls? Or she's yes, she's clutching her pearls. It's um, it's one of the most profound and and obviously very tragic images, but you're right, it is shocking to see that this was printed in life, and there's such a sense of, and this was a full page image. Um, a picture of the week or something like that, which is really astounding too. So when you think about insensitivity, you might say, um, you could think about that too. We think about the insensitivity in certain ways of the media and how they're playing that emotionally and how Warhol was working with this image at the same time, but he did this much, many years after that image was very famous. I think it had been, there was a reason why it was back in the news. It had been reprinted oh. like Best of Life. There was something that made it. Interesting. Because uh, it's called The Beautiful that. Suicide. That's basically how this image of Evelyn McHale right. is described, The Beautiful Suicide. Which and, I'm sure life would have somehow imposed yeah. on it. Yeah. And you know, the standard thing to say about Warhol is that by repeating an image, he removes the emotion, but I think in a way he does the opposite. I mean, he transfers Agreed. it from mm -hmm. this really hideous voyeuristic image, he turns right. it into high art automatically by putting it on canvas. The repetition seems to me a marker of not being able to turn away, not being mm -hmm. willing to turn away, uh, right. forcing us to confront right. it, you know? 
I'm so interested in Warhol's kind of, I think one of the most interesting things about Warhol is, is how emphatic his work is, how he could, how absolutist it is, right? So he's reducing everything, like the flowers, that flower image repeated over and over again, or these images, this quality of emphasis that makes his work so powerful, I think, um, the sense of conviction and belief that his work seems to imply, and that's part of, I think, why it's so mesmerizing, why it's so gripping and um, effective as work is, is his commitment, in a sense, yeah. to a, a found image. And that's, I mean, for me, I've been thinking and writing a lot about appropriation mm -hmm. as like the vital strategy. In fact, I think since 1500, that it's the wow. strategy that governs all of Western fine art, that it's at the mm -hmm. heart of it, and I won't get into mm -hmm. that now. But, um, but I think that is what he's showing, I mean, he almost always uses an appropriated image, and yeah. I think he's showing yeah. that it's not just a joke. It's not just Duchamp right. taking the urinal right. and saying, look at this, it's, a, it's now a sculpture called Fountain. It's, mm. He's showing that appropriation works. Right. Appropriation mm -hmm. actually has power. And mm -hmm. that's what we're seeing here, right? Is He's appropriating this image, but it's not emptied out because of that. No. It's, right. it's, and it's, it's fine art. And fine art has cultural gravitas, has weight, you know? Um, yeah, I mean... You know, I can't recommend enough really looking at Warhol, like really looking at it the way you look at a Rembrandt. This yeah. is a, you know, a woman's suicide, and this is a detail, so that those of you can see what, what it's actually yeah. picturing here. How are we doing for time, actually? Yeah. A couple of more minutes. Oh, that was so fast, boy. Um, it always happens. I mean, the Do weird thing, yeah. just Monica and I have now <laughs> spoken about Warhol for probably three hours today straight, maybe more, and we zoomed about him. And I don't feel as though we're even scratching no, the know. surface. I'm not bored, right. I'm not tired. <laughs> now, I'm a freak about Warhol, obviously, but. I'm sorry, what's that? The Polaroids? The nude Polaroids? Well, do you want to talk about, oh, well, what, do we want to take questions, or? Yeah. Or should we talk Does for, anyone do we want to? Talk, Talk about, about the new Polaroids. Polaroids. Okay, we will sure. do that. Um, there is a room downstairs with mm -hmm. gray curtains in front of it <laughs> that makes these works look absolutely safe and, you know, unerotic. There's some very I tried to choose imagery. them carefully when yeah. I did this. And I also wanted to put some of the paintings in. Yeah. Um, because, um, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I was saying I don't know that uh, this, this inc the inclusion of this aspect of the show was something that we did here and we that wasn't done in the other iterations of this exhibition. It was something that I kind of wrestled with a bit in thinking about, you know, that it was absolutely essential if we were gonna do a queer gallery, that we, as we were calling them, to have Warhol's own relationship to his sexuality and, and his work part of that gallery, even though Warhol didn't exhibit this work in his lifetime. There's a lot of these are research um, materials for Warhol. Um, and so it was a bit of something that I was uh, grappling with because he didn't show them. They weren't made public. Although, of course, the torso work was shown, in, I think at what, the Grand Palais, Palais in Paris, I think. Bunch and, of yeah, it was shown in California too, but only yeah. the tasteful ones. I mean, not right. the... Not, not the really second, erotic yeah. ones, yeah. I mean, I do think, and, and God knows, Monica, you know so much more about this than I do, but 
especially in the 70s, the actual sex act meant something completely different yeah. in queer context. It was context. very political. Yeah. <laughs> it was a political And celebratory, yes. right? In a way, yes. these, I know right. it seems strange. I mean, there are even pictures of anal sex in progress and oral uh -huh. sex in progress yeah. in your, in your yeah. gallery. But that was so liberating and yes. celebratory. Sure. It's very hard. Yeah. And of course, it was pornographic, too. Um, but it had a completely different valence. It Absolutely. wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, it was, you could say it was nasty if you like, but it was, it was powerful. It was, there was love in it in a weird way. Love for one's sexuality, you know? Yeah, and the first time that was really happening. Yeah. When you think of, in culture at large, that this was available to gay men um, and to, to queer people at this point. And, and semi-out, right? It, yeah, I mean, right. there were places you could go and watch yes. gay men having sex. I mean, yeah. you always could, probably even in the 40s, but it... It, it was very dangerous. I mean, and, and well, it was always, I suppose, there was an element there. But yeah, the piers in New York, for instance. and th But they and became less dangerous, right? They were, and straight people mm -hmm. went to gay sex clubs and stuff. Uh, I mean, I remember... Mm -hmm you know, going to gay clubs, because that's where right. you wanted to dance, and that's yes. where life, right. that's where energy was in the 70s, right. you know. Well, at Studio 54 as well, was, yeah, was, that, uh, yeah, was, was a lot sort of, of bisexual in yeah. that sense. But, but actually, the founders of Studio 54 said, the gay clubs were where all the energy is, they wanted, it was kind of, it reminds me of uh, the story about Elvis, that if only they could find a white guy who could sing like a black guy, then they'd make a fortune, and they found Elvis. Well, Studio 54 was, if only we could have a straight club that was like a gay club, and that was Studio 54. They said that explicitly, the founders. That was wow. their goal. Oh. Um, yeah, you know, I find this work, I don't, for once, I don't have an easy take. Normally, I've got a, you know, a soundbite, but this work is complicated. Some of the most complicated Warhol work, I think, you know. I, I don't know if you agree with me, but it's... Uh, that's so interesting, complicated. Hard, uh, hard to come to grips with, hard to... Really? Sorry, that's an unfortunate expression, I guess. Hard that to was come not to on purpose. Um, oh. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't feel that way oh, at all. Oh, I don't know. I guess it's... Um, I think if I think of it as private, as something he was doing for himself, and, uh, and also in relationship to Maplethorpe, who he was competitive with, and Maplethorpe had just released at the kitchen had just had that major yeah. exhibition that yeah. launched Maplethorpe in terms of his SM work. Uh, the fact that Warhol that's began important. doing this work after that's two weeks after, I think that's a really, I really critical kind of aspect. Forgot. And that Warhol also was fighting really, I think for his, his sense of self as an artist yeah. um, throughout the seventies because of the portraiture work and the business art and the portraiture yeah. and the way that he was, what I love about Warhol is that he kept making real work throughout his life. And uh, the oxidation paintings were, in, in many ways, I think, as a part of this um, yeah. this moment, actually, because it was the same year that, I think, 77, right? Wasn't that, it? Or, that, so I, really, that's an amazing period where he had you know a lot of gay men coming from, I guess, the baths or that, um, that Victor Hugo was procuring yeah. for him. Uh, the same men, in many ways, were having sex in in the in the factory, in the factory, you know, in, the back, in the back room. Well, so there was a lot going out. on. Then eventually, in the back they, his, <laughs> Andy's subordinate yeah. said, "You cannot keep doing this. This yeah. has to happen somewhere uh, else. We have teenage interns in the factory. You know, this right. is not acceptable." So there was like it's such an interesting thing because I do think of this as being Warhol's work for himself, and so I think. 
but work. I mean, it's really important for me to recognize that I th he didn't take his artist hat off to make this, even when he's shooting no. private no. Polaroids. No. He is still an artist. But look at the way he's framing these bodies. Yeah. I think that's why I really wanted to blow them up and make them and crop th crop the white borders from them to look at the way that he's cropping them. I think that's a fascinating aspect, yeah. the positive negative space. I mean, yeah. that's how I'm looking at these in many ways, right. compositionally. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that's a they're just positive and negative space. <laughs> they're really abstract. I mean, they definitely. are because they're so intentionally yeah. um, oh, I agree cropped in such a way that yeah. they're I mean, even this one with the, yeah. with the yes. penis rather visible, right, there's still right. a quality of, of show and tell. You know, it's a complicated right. image. They're beautiful images, and I think abutted against each other. You Sorry, really, that that's an unfortunate <laughs> phrase. I can't let you get away with Sorry. that. Um, anyway. Should we take questions on that? I'm now embarrassed. I'm actually, I'm actually red. Thank you so much. This has really been great. Um, I have a question, but it's not about the, the sexual images. You, you mentioned a little bit about Duchamp um, and the ready-made and the influence on Andy Warhol. Can you talk a little more about the relationship of Warhol's work to Duchamp? And, if, I, yeah. and if Duchamp was a really important artist to Andy Warhol? He was beyond very important. I mean, very briefly, Warhol had incredible luck because for six years in, in Pittsburgh, the very six years or five years really, that he was coming of age as an artist, there was an amazing gallery called Outlines Gallery ridiculously good. It was like a mini MoMA, a commercial gallery that never sold a work. And they, the, they owned one of Duchamp's Boite en Valise, which is, as you know, where Duchamp made miniatures of all of his works. So Warhol was exposed to that. Um, he became a Duchamp collector really early on and started buying Duchamp material. Apparently, I spoke to one of his classmates uh, from art school who said they were obsessed with Duchamp. Everyone was talking about Duchamp earlier than you imagine. I mean, this is 48, 49, but his teachers were so with it and so smart and so good that they exposed their students to Marcel Duchamp. So Warhol was obsessed and, and then Warhol, it's really sad, uh, Warhol and Duchamp were supposed to do a 24-hour movie of Marcel Duchamp. It was supposed to happen, it was in the planning, and then Warhol gets shot. So that puts, there's nothing but paid to it, then they're going to do it, and then Warhol recovers in September, and Duchamp dies, I think, in October of 1968. So it's just terrible bad luck that that never happened. He does do a shorter, he does a four-minute movie, several four-minute movies of Duchamp. But it's, it's, absolutely the most important thing for understanding Andy Warhol is that he's a, a serious conceptual artist in the Duchampian tradition, I think. Should we, yeah, well, why don't we pass one of these? And if you've got a question for Monica, I'll just run over. In fact, why don't I, I'll just stand next to you and we can pass, the, we can pass this back and forth as we need to. Uh, thank you so much. The talk has been riveting. And one thing that comes to mind for me and my love of Warhol is his use of color. Uh -huh. Can you talk about what was so innovative about the Polaroid portraits that were painted on canvas with the color field elements that are just so dead on? Can you talk about that more? Monica's the artist, so I should, please, please, because I've got a bad take, I'm sorry, I've got a terrible take on Warhol and color. Um, right, get me in trouble. The weird thing about Warhol as a colorist is normally you say someone's a great colorist because they do X with color or because they do Y with color. They're interested in primaries. Oh, no, no, they never work with primaries. They always, you know, Turner works with, you know, whatever you call pastel colors, watercolors. 
Warhol worked in every imaginable color. So what does it mean for someone to be a great colorist if they're completely, you know, they don't distinguish between different colors? So I think Warhol's use of color, you're absolutely right. He's invested in color, but he's also, as with everything he ever did, he's poking his finger, he's, he's prodding the notion of being a good colorist. Like if you'd, those kind of old-fashioned ways of talking about an artist, he has a beautiful touch, he's a great colorist, were just what Warhol's soul was rebelling against. I mean, we had one question about Duchamp and then a question about color. Those are the two poles of who Warhol was, I think. And he occupied both poles simultaneously, which is, I guess, why I think he's a really great, interesting artist. Um, but I, yeah, it's complicated. Huh, you could say that about every... There, well, ladies and gentlemen, is you know this, there's an amazing room downstairs that Monica did an amazing job curating of these pictures of transgendered people and transsexual people, um, a whole room of them, and they're amazingly colorful. And there, I think a, there's a case where the color is celebratory. I read those paintings as a celebration of that of those people and in their radicalism, in the difficulties of their lives. Um, I'm wondering if the way that he worked with color in that, I was saying, I've always been saying, I think those paintings, I can really enter those paintings as paintings. Yeah. And I'm all, a lot of the Warhols, you don't really conceive of them that way. They're just, you accept them, yeah. um, I would say. But those paintings, you can really, as a painter, I really enjoy yeah. looking at how the he surface. Works, the surface. The surface is yeah. what's amazing. You don't think of Andy as an artist of surface, but yeah. you know, and think of the great surface Meisters, the gesture, you know. yeah. the surface, the way that he was working with color and the kind of, I, I hate to say this because I dare not say it, but there's an expressive and visceral quality to the pain in those pictures. Yeah. That's how I feel about yeah, them. Yeah, I think. Um, and I'm just kind of trusting my gut in saying that, but that was, that was my reaction to that work, that I, I was very excited by and looking at the way that he works. And even the small canvases are remarkably yeah. exciting to look at. Um, in terms of how he was just navigating the paint in those. And, you know, he made like over 200 of, of those pieces. So. And didn't have to. He was no. commissioned to make way To make that, 100 way or so. Yeah. And he made 200 and something. Was it 260? I can't, I can't remember the number anymore. No. Um, but the funny thing is about them is I feel they're also a joke about, about painting. Like they're weird and you feel there's something ironic. Mm. He's not a straight painter. He's never what's called a straight painter. He's like, yes, they're beautifully painted, but every stroke also feels like a commentary and a critique and a joke about painting at the same time as it's creating a beautiful painting. Do you agree with me? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> she knows way more no, about I this. Don't. She's Just actually a painter. I can't. I can't agree with you. I have oh. to. And for me, in order for me to love the paintings and maybe they have to be straight. On some level, I have to believe them. I mean, oh, I, but I mean, they're beautiful. They're, be they're undeniably fascinating objects. I'm not disagreeing with you about that. <laughs> I know, I guess I want to, you know, that's the thing is, uh, in some level, I just want to enjoy them, you know? And if I were to think that he was making some ironic... Uh, Not a trivial ironic, know. a deep ironic, you know, a deep, there's pain there too. Oh. There's, there's, well, I mean, I think a good painter is challenging the medium. And I think he's doing that in those paintings, mm. right? No. I don't know, I don't <laughs> I can, know I'm, enough. I'm willing I don't to be know. wrong. I, My no, wife I, is a painter, actually, and she oh, thinks I'm a complete think? idiot oh, good. About whenever I talk <laughs> about paintings. So, oh, good, thank you very much. I'm relieved. Um, I thought it was uh, but, And like you, she thinks painting is the most problematic thing you could ever do. She's always on the verge of quitting and has several times. That's hard, times, yeah. You know, yeah. Do you agree? Oh. Do you want to 
Monica, do you agree there was a big influence by Eve Klein? Oh, yeah. And part of the color, I oh. mean, that was uh, treating color in an unusual way. Absolutely. Well, the, the, I think if one wants to talk about Warhol as a colorist, and that is often how people talk about him, it's that he could work with such intense saturated color. Yeah. I know, you know, and when you look at like the large portrait of Wilhelmina Ross downstairs, it's a remarkable image in yeah. terms of how color is uh, manifesting. And then also I think what's interesting too is looking at the video of Warhol uh, painting right. and how a remarkably uh, workmanlike he is in painting, which I love to watch. It's also yeah. how. Uh, was that acrylic? Yeah, he yeah. paints with acrylic. So there's like you know, acrylic is it's plastic. Yeah, he's painting with plastic. He's painting with plastic. So I mean, I'm not a great lover of acrylic, but it's interesting how he's working with it. He's just very there's a kind of factuality which I love yeah. in the way that he's painting, and that would make an argument that would would would. Uh, support what you're saying, which I mean, is that it's very workmanlike. There's a, you know, Frank Stella in 1962 starts painting with house paint and there's a whole rhetoric. He makes a series mm -hmm. of paintings that are named right. after the colors and painted with Benjamin house Moore. painter colors. Yeah, yeah. And Andy commissioned a series of mm -hmm. miniature versions of those Frank Stellas mm -hmm. that are named after workmanlike colors. Yeah. So I think he was always interested in that notion of mm. of unfancifying yes, painting. I, I it's think just, I'm a house painter. House painting and art painting are closely aligned. Yeah, but don't you think it's interesting that those paintings are so dynamic? I mean, they really. Which the ones? Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, series, they're, they're very they're very dynamic works. And like I think the people that he's representing. Yes. You know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think I think there's, and on the Eve Klein thing, I'll say one other thing about him. So Eve Klein is this Frenchman who dies very very young, not long after Warhol meets him. He paints these famous blue monochromes the international Klein blue monochromes, but he also was a trickster. He also was better known for his persona. He dressed sort of like a dandy. He said strange, oracular things, and I think he's an important model for Andy as the artist, as performer, as trickster. Like, people at the time didn't know whether to take the monochrome seriously. Were they actually meant to, you know, be deep spiritual objects, or were they poking fun at all the idiots willing to look at them. I mean, so he would show a show of identical monochromes and put a different price on different pictures, which is, Warhol ended up doing similar things, you know? So there was all that tricksterism, and I think that, like, Warhol was galvanized by that. And I think Eve Klein, the moment he meets Warhol, just after, he starts talking about kitsch, and, which he had never talked about before, you know? So, there you go. Oh, I think that was our, could we take one more question? One more? Oh my gosh, you came all the way back here. Um, first of all, it's a great honor to have you here. Thanks. Um, I'm very interested, it keeps saying, as a photographer, his paintings, his painter, a painter, a painter. Every piece by Andy is photographic based. And I tend to call him a photographer before I consider of a painter. His video, everything that comes out of that, that's part one. So part two, true. back to his mother. Mm. Do, where was it that she screamed, I am Andy Warhol? 
this is a story told by someone who knew them very well uh, in the 1950s in his third apartment in New York in 1950. That would have been like 56, I guess, 57. Um, and it's a story this guy told that she... What's the story? I can't remember the exact details. She goes away and comes back with her bags, or that she's about to leave. Yeah, she felt mistreated, and she came back and put her bags down and said, I am Andy Warhol. Now, that's such a weird story. It's either the most obvious lie ever, or it's too weird for someone to make it up. And I, I report, you know, the thing about Warhol is half the things people tell you, you have no way of knowing if they're true or not. But I'm a biographer. I sort of have to put it in because it's so interesting. But that crossover yeah. when the mother with the cats and his yeah. writing, you know, that blur. Yeah, there's a real blur about, is she an avatar of him? That's yeah. one of the possibilities is that he turns her. I mean, the amoral Warhol is he takes his poor babushka mother and forces her into being an avatar. I mean, she wins two advertising awards, but not as Julia Warhola, as Andy Warhol's mother. And it's clear that the people given the award think of this as Andy Warhol's work and we're just like as a joke almost, we're gonna credit it to Andy Warhol's mother. So it's, it's really a complicated relationship, you know. Uh, really one of the more interesting things in his life. Um, I, I think we had to call that our last question, but we're gonna be available I'm happy to answer questions, as it were, in person, off mic now, and so is Monica, I hope, I think, yeah. Thank you both. That was really great. We have Blake's book over here um, for sale. Um, Blake will be available to autograph, and our exhibition closes March 27th. Please come and come again.